Welcome to a bonus audio lecture for 7-6 Notes. The essay is titled, Wrangling for War. Here we go. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savages. We'll fight our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Perhaps no conflict has been more romanticized than World War II. The archetypal duel between good and evil continues to inspire countless adaptations in movies, shows, and video games. These renditions have certainly garnered proper attention, but have also tended to gloss over the nuanced politique that occurred prior to the heroism staged on the battlefield. Despite the obvious threat that fascist regimes posed on the rest of the world, the American public needed more coaxing to enter in a conflict that would win widespread admiration generations later. U.S. entry in the war was less informed on the public's demand to stop belligerency abroad than it was on the exhaustive efforts from the charismatic man from Hyde Park. No person better secured America's hegemony as the arsenal of democracy in a post-war world than Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who had to constantly negotiate with isolationists, imperialists, and communists to advance national interests. Part 1. Isolationists Throughout the 1930s, the proliferation of fascism in Italy, Germany, Spain, and Japan was met with apathy or applause by the American electorate. Radical ideologies were a distant and abstract menace to many unemployed factory workers and farmers who still felt the pangs of the economic depression. Some Americans even believed that fascism was a providential remedy to the specter of communism that haunted Europe since the revolution in 1917. Statesmen predictably mirrored these popular sentiments and were validated by Senator Gerald Nye's commission report on the financial motivation to enter the previous world war. Underscoring the need for the U.S. to avoid foreign entanglements, the memo outlined how weapons manufacturers and bankers made gluttonous profits at the expense of American lives, who were told that deployment along the Western Front was necessary for national security. Outrage over these revelations awarded a group of politicians known as isolationists to hold prominent tenure in Congress up until 1938. Isolationists responded to Hitler's seizure of the Rhineland and Sudetenland, Mussolini's occupation of Ethiopia, Emperor Hirohito's invasion of Manchuria, and Franco's rise to power in Spain with a series of laws limiting U.S. support in impending conflicts. These policies, collectively known as the Neutrality Acts, were passed in 1935 through 1939 that restricted the nation's distribution of munitions and loans to any belligerent parties in Europe. These laws not only signaled to fascist dictators, but to the freedom fighters opposing them that the United States would not intervene. Left-wing loyalists who were fighting against General Franco during the Spanish Civil War foreshadowed what would happen if most of the world powers continued their policy of benign neglect. Calling on the American public to sacrifice their sons to what seemed like another European conflict would prove even more difficult to justify, despite the looming threat posed by totalitarian regimes. 
Unlike his constituency, FDR saw great value in curtailing the aggressive expansion of these nations and supporting war-weary France and England. While the sovereignty of nations were being threatened and the failed promises at the Munich Conference revealed diplomatic shortcomings of appeasement, FDR advocated for all democracies to check the expansion of militaristic regimes through the use of sanctions. The public's negative reaction to his famous quarantine speech made him realize that he would need to find more surreptitious methods of protecting democracies under threat. Known as the good neighbor policy, FDR calculated that a democratic coalition based on trust and mutual interest would be a sustainable vanguard to totalitarian regimes across the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Revolutionizing long-standing foreign policy in South America, he repudiated his cousin's corollary to the Monroe Doctrine in 1933. At the 7th Pan-American Conference in 1936, he personally pledged to submit further disputes to arbitration instead of making unilateral action for American interests. He further argued for a defense pact across the Western Hemisphere in the event of an invasion from Germany or Japan. To show good faith on his words of peace, he persuaded Congress to nullify the Platt Amendment in 1934 and continue to cultivate respect by encouraging American oil businessmen to negotiate a settlement with the Mexican government after President Cardenas uh, nationalized oil fields along the Yucatan Peninsula in 1938. FDR also prepared for war that the public wanted to ignore. He was able to quietly convince isolationists in the Congress to increase the country's defense budget by two-thirds for the sake of national security while officially stating the nation's neutrality. In addition, Roosevelt was able to have discretionary authority over selling ships to belligerent nations, i.e. England, if they purchased directly with cash. The, this cash-and-carry policy, in conjunction with Roosevelt's clandestine arrangement, known as the Destroyers for Bases deal, allowed him to subversively support the fight against fascism while giving the impression that he was publicly cooperating with isolationists. As war broke out in Europe by 1939, FDR cajoled a reluctant Congress to pass the Selective Service and Lend-Lease Acts, despite the opposition from the America First Committee. Roosevelt's political maneuvering ultimately prepared the nation to participate in impending ideological fight against militarism after the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii on December 7, 1941. Without these efforts, the United States might not have been able to secure early strategic victories during the war that would later secure the nation's position as a world leader by 1945. Part 2. Imperialists Despite their common cause to halt the expansion of totalitarianism in Europe and Asia, Roosevelt and Winston Churchill's motivation for doing so varied greatly. Hoping to actualize the vision of his democratic predecessor, the New York progressive viewed the war as an opportunity to fulfill the ideal of collective security espoused in Wilson's 14 points. The success of this objective rested upon promoting self-determination for all nations and an international peacekeeping organization that would mediate future international disputes and conflicts. Unlike Wilson, however, FDR saw the value in instituting collective leadership when facilitating peace rather than the procedural and impractical channels offered in a democratic system. The leader of this new world order would be the United States and her allies nations that would have considerable political, economic, and social influence across the globe. It was Roosevelt's intention to have Great Britain as a strategic ally not only in this war, but for the rest of the 20th century. 
these lofty goals were mechanically tolerated by England's prime minister, who suffered polite restraint to Roosevelt's idealism. Churchill needed the United States' support in stopping Hitler from taking over the rest of Europe and could not afford to waste time debating over the meticulous details of post-war planning. The war had to be won first. Churchill's main objective was to secure colonial outposts in jeopardy of being lost to the Third Reich. It would seem counterintuitive to spend all that effort to protect resource-rich territories to only free them from the imperial yoke of Her Majesty's Empire. Churchill reasoned that it was more prudent to tacitly agree to Roosevelt's post-war objectives now and negotiate later rather than risk an important relationship with a nation that could offer ships, arms, munitions, and loans. This tenuous dynamic is best illustrating during their meeting off the coast of Newfoundland in 1940 and drafted of the Atlantic Charter. This helped to secure Anglo-American alliance throughout the war, as well as provide the foundation of what would be discussed at the Yalta Conference in 1945. Part 3. Communists. Like Churchill, Stalin was an unlikely ally of Roosevelt during World War II. As the uncontested leader of the new Soviet Union after Lenin's death in 1924, the Man of Steel came to embody the perverse interpretation of communism espoused by Karl Marx so long ago. Less of an ideologue and more of a charlatan, Stalin's totalitarian grip over Russia was maintained under the superficial guise of socialism. Indeed, his five-year plan to quickly industrialize a nation, previously impaired by feudal policies imposed under the corrupt Romanov dynasty, came with a tragic and genocidal consequence. Stalin's policies and threatening nature of the ideology damaged Anglo-Soviet relations in the 1920s. To make matters worse, Stalin's paranoia was further compounded by the fact that European leaders often ignored his input on the rise of fascism. It was seen as a great betrayal to Stalin when European leaders such as Neville Chamberlain and Edouard Daladier at the Munich Conference recognized the Third Reich's claim to the Sudetenland, an area of close proximity to the fledgling communist nation. Desperate to maintain security and control his country historically plagued by foreign infiltration, Stalin shocked European diplomats by signing the Nazi-Soviet Pact in 1939. This paradoxical alliance was short-lived, however, when Hitler authorized the invasion of the Slavic Empire known as Operation Barbarossa. Now that the natural enemy to communism directly threatened the Russian security, Stalin joined the Allied effort to defeat the Axis powers. To be sure, none of the Western leaders knew the full extent of the atrocities Stalin committed on his own people, but the din of war forced them to prioritize on defeating Hitler before scrutinizing the Bolshevik from the East. Stalin's suspicion of Western leaders never waned throughout the war, however. He had good reason to believe that Churchill cared more about securing England's oil interests in the Middle East than rushing to help the shell-shocked troops in the rubble-ridden cities of the Soviet Republic. Moreover, Churchill's personal animosity and fear of socialism was invariably apparent during somber meetings and expressed privately to Roosevelt. By 1946, Churchill's suspicion of Soviet expansion would later transcend to public consciousness in 1946 through his famous Iron Curtain speech staged at Westminster College, Missouri. Roosevelt, aware of the tenuous alliance between England and the Soviet Union, seemed to be a natural intermediary between the two. For Stalin, Roosevelt established himself as a progressive interested in establishing cooperative trust among world power that included the Soviet Union. For Churchill, who was a distant relative, Roosevelt had no issues connecting with his cousin united by a common culture and language. 
Roosevelt's post-war goal of promoting democracy contrasted with the interests of the Soviet Union. Stalin was less concerned about spreading any particular ideology than he was with maintaining security through the acquisition of satellite states that would function as a de facto buffer zone. Churchill could not trust a man slowly acquiring the Eastern Bloc and claiming it was for national security. He had heard a similar argument from Hitler not so long ago. The issues that lay dormant among these leaders would unearth the moment fascism was neutralized by 1944. Despite these underlying concerns, Roosevelt was able to maintain the shaky alliance among the big three, ensured that the network of supplies, information, and troops necessary to wage a two-front war on Hitler was not jeopardized. Roosevelt's efforts to not only prepare the nation for war, but position it to be the head architect of New World Order cannot be overstated. As the ashes of war began to settle and fascism was no longer a political option for frustrated nations, Roosevelt was able to provide the foundation for diplomacy with the aid of the United Nations and agreements secured at the Yalta Conference in 1945. One wonders if Roosevelt would have altered the course of the Cold War had he lived long enough to develop a robust policy of handling the Soviet Union after World War II.